Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, anime, comic books, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Tilda Coldholt, author of Northern Wrath, to be published by Solaris Books, October 27th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. So first, considering, you know, authors always have a bunch of ideas rolling around, how did this particular idea rise above the rest for you and get written? Well, for me, this one relates to my background. So I should probably give you a bit of background information. Sure. I was born in Denmark, but when I was 10, I moved with my family to France. And since then, I've lived in a few different places both in France and England, South Korea. And you could say that I've planted roots in all of these different places hmm. and taken pieces of the cultures with me to the point where I had to have a look at my real roots, my proper roots hmm. and my Danish roots. And it so happens that as a Dane living abroad, I have often introduced myself as a Viking. Hmm. And I began to wonder if maybe there was a bit more to this than just a joke. And so I began to dig into the research. And as I looked into the Vikings, I began to understand a part of my identity and also of my cultural makeup. And that is pretty much the reason I wrote this book, because as I did research into the Vikings, I felt like there was a story here that wasn't being told and that I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, tell me then a little bit about the, uh, the book, the protagonist setting, conflict. Right. So if I give you first the pitch that I used to use for agents when I was pitching agents. Sure. I used to say, so this is definitely epic fantasy, but it's sort of historical fiction about Vikings where everything that the Vikings believed in is real. Mm. So they're gods, giants, the nine worlds, the tree of life, everything. And their mythology and their belief, that is the magic. And there is an increasing amount of magic throughout the trilogy. Mm -hmm. So that's how I used to pitch the, the book. But if we're talking about the setting, then we're in Denmark, Jutland. Mm -hmm. And that is not the typical Norwegian mountains and fjords that we're probably used to thinking about when I say Vikings. Mm -hmm. um, to give a bit of context, I don't know how familiar you are with Scandinavia, but... Uh, the tallest mountain in all of Denmark is called Himmelbjerg, which means the mountain of the sky. Mm -hmm. But that mountain is only, I think it's 180 meters above sea level. Mm -hmm. And in feet, I think that would be 580 feet above sea level. Mm -hmm. And that is considered a huge mountain. So Jadlon is a very, very flat landscape. So probably not what most people picture when I say Vikings. Mm -hmm. So in Northern Wrath, we focus on this very small raiding town in the north of, of Jutland. And the story is set in about the year 966, just about. Mm. Uh, I say that with some certainty because for anyone currently reading, um, there is an event that happens around page 100, and that is a real historical event, and it sort of sets everything in the book in motion. Mm -hmm. And that is an event that's been described, been described by many different historians, and among them is Adam of Bremen, who dated it to the year 966, but he's a bit of an unreliable source. Uh -huh. So I'm going to say anything between, you know, 20 or 30 years, give and take, somewhere around that time. Okay. But this is a time in Scandinavia that I find particularly interesting because there is a power shift happening, especially in Denmark. So Denmark has a direct border to current-day Germany, which was Christian land at the time. So they saw these changes earlier than the rest of Scandinavia. And what we have is that back in the old days, in Viking Age, Scandinavia, the land used to be ruled by different chiefchains. So you'd have towns and areas of land of different sizes where chiefs ruled. But what starts to happen around this time is that kings are starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. And they use Christianity to pull themselves forward. And obviously that's a very different kind of rule. Because chiefs were pretty much elected. But kings, you can't argue with that. Mm -hmm. 
So if the king is there, his son is going to rule after him and his son after him and so on and so forth. So this is really a time during which all of Scandinavia is changing and the power structures are changing. Mm -hmm. And so we follow uh, a town of raiders who oppose all of these coming changes. Mm -hmm. We have Hilda. She is a shield maiden, so a female warrior. Then we have Einar, who is the son of the chief, and he struggles with forces that he doesn't quite understand. We have Hilda's father, Ragnar, and he is our eyes towards the gods. He's a storyteller, and he brings us very close to the gods. And then we have Einar's mother, who has a bit of a secret, and that's all I'm going to tell you about her. But essentially, it's one family, and their insistence on trying to keep their beliefs in the face of Christianity. Okay. Now, one thing that comes to mind, and not trying to create any contentious issues, but since you're saying it's, you know, the mythology is real, and then you Mm -hmm. have Christianity as well, you know, Mm -hmm. I see, you know, you have this thing, you see where I'm getting at, you know. I definitely, I see where you're getting at, yes. Uh, It's funny that you mention it, because from certain sources that I've looked at, it looks like, I mean, Christianity was around in Scandinavia as well for a long time before it really started to take over and for a long time afterwards, obviously. <laughs> but the Vikings had many different gods. And so for them, it was not a problem to incorporate a new one. <laughs> oh, your god is named Christ? Okay, what does he do? Okay, what sort of places he live in? Okay. And then they more naturally included that. So I'm not saying that there's one true understanding or anything like that. <laughs> but... I'm using the mythology as different worlds, as different magic systems, okay. and looking at it from the Viking perspective. Fascinating. So since there is so much history in the book, and it comes in at 700 pages, it's listed as, right. which is, you know, that's, that's a good amount of information there. Um, how did you do your research um, for the book? Oh, for me, research is quite a passion project. Mm-hmm. So I've done a lot of it. I've done big pieces of research and smaller things as well. On the smaller side, um, I would say I've done everyday kind of research while writing things like what were the native plants in this area, you know, moon cycles, things like that. Um, Slightly bigger than I've done a lot of literary sources, um, read all of the sagas, different translations of the Eddas, which are the basis of the mythology, the foundation of the mythology. And I have examined sources in, I think, eight different languages, something like that. It's a bit ridiculous. Um, Learned Old Norse just enough to decipher the rune stones and so on. And I looked at a lot of different historians' interpretations of this era Mm -hmm. and at the archaeology and the different interpretations of the archaeology. For example, in more recent years, there's been a bit more of a push to re-examine the role of women in Viking Age Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. So that's been quite interesting to follow. Um, but then I got a commission to do some legal work for um, about human rights in Iron Age Scandinavia. Hmm. So that led me to study a lot of law texts. And I was quite surprised to learn um, what, I, what I had to learn from all of these texts. It was things like the legal, legal implications of owning and taming a bear. Hmm. Uh, there were texts describing how to correctly... Uh, cut up a washed up well on the beach, mm. uh, things like that. And that really painted a picture of who the Vikings were for me. So I ended up doing a lot more practical research as well. Mm-hmm. Things like going to Viking markets where reenactors get to experience a piece of Viking age. Mm-hmm. And also, I think my biggest research project was that I eventually joined the crew of the world's largest reconstructed Viking warship. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) It's called the Sea Stallion, and Mm. it's a beautiful beast. Uh, 60 oars, and we are about 60 warriors on board when we sail it. And so I've sailed with that ship for a few years now. It started, as I said, as research, but it really became a passion. It was just so much fun. Where do they (laughs) sail out of? Um, so the ship is based in Ros- at the Roskilde Viking Ship Museum, who built it, and that's in Denmark. Mm-hmm. So that's where that's where we sail from. And then every year, you know, it depends on the wind, wherever the wind takes us, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's been very fun, and it taught me a lot of different things that I don't think I would have considered otherwise. For example, the kind of commotion 
that happens when 60 sailors arrive into a harbor. It doesn't really matter the size of the harbor. It always feels like we're taking over everything. Yeah, yeah. And we've suddenly raided our own weight in ice cream and beer whenever we go <laughs> somewhere. So uh, that's been fun. But if one ship can cause that much commotion, I mean, think about 10 ships arriving at the same time mm-hmm. with warriors on board all ready to fight. Mm-hmm. That's quite a scary prospect. I'm speaking with Tilda Coldholt, author of Northern Wrath. You can find more information on her work at northernwrath.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. Have you, uh, and this is sort of a plug for my other podcast, I interviewed yeah. um, Johanna Friedrich's daughter. She wrote a book on Valkyrie recently. Right. Um, I posted that on my my military history podcast. Um, are you familiar with that book? I don't think I'm familiar, especially particularly with that one, but I'm definitely going to have a look after we finish here, that's for sure. Yeah, it just came out, um, I think, like a month or two ago. Um, and one of the things she pointed out was – uh, while there is a lot of information, there's also a a, a lot of gaps in the knowledge. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, definitely, yes. So one of the things I pointed out was that uh, – so there's not a lot, at, at least from what she found, there's not a lot of uh, evidence that females participated as warriors. However, mm-hmm. there are a lot of legends about it. So I posited, exactly. you know, ha- why would they have so many legends about mm-hmm. it? if it maybe didn't happen a little yeah. more frequently than people have proof for. Yeah. So were you able to, uh, uh, did you see any archeological sites or anything like that? Did you mention that? Um, yes, I, I took, I had a big focus on the archeological side of things. And especially as you talk about the women, the female fighters as well, because obviously at some point I had to decide, was I going to include female warriors or was I not? And as far as I can see, um, there are two schools of thoughts on this. Mm. So there is the more traditional school of thought that takes a bit more of the Victorian approach that says all women in the past were suppressed and subordinate to men. And that is how it was. Mm-hmm. And then there is an emerging school of thought that kind of challenges this and goes, hold on, that's not necessarily true. And if we go into things with that mindset, we're also imposing our modern day views on the past. Mm. And so there's been a bit of a pushback, uh, especially with old archaeological finds um, that were often gendered based on the grave finds. So what was in the grave? If there was a weapon, it had to be a man. But, I mean, as you mentioned, we don't know. We we simply don't know. We weren't there. Mm -hmm. But what really convinced me, I've sort of taken the second approach, and what convinced me was a lot of these texts that I could find. So, for example... We have um, a historian called Saxo Grammaticus who wrote down one of the earliest histories of Denmark. And there were a few things that Saxo had to contextualize for his contemporaries who were 1,200 Christians. And one of these things were shield maidens, so female warriors. He wrote a section about how back in Iron Age, Scandinavia, there were women who fought, who dressed as men, and who went to battle did battle with and against men. Mm. And it is scandalizing thought to him, absolutely scandalizing. But at the same time, he realizes that he cannot tell the history of Denmark without in- including these women. So that was quite interesting to me mm. because I have, I have no, I'm pretty sure that if he could have told the story without them, he would have done so. And then the second thing that really convinced me was looking at the law texts, especially the inheritance laws. So these were written down mostly in a post-Christian Scandinavia, but still you can see the remnants of the Viking Age. And you can see that women could inherit land. Hmm. They could own property. They could own wealth. 
So I think the gender inequalities, we tend to want to view it today as modern folk when we look at the past, just wasn't really there in the same way. But obviously we, we don't know for certain. Right. It's interesting. Um, so how about, I want to turn to the beasts, you know, the giants and the monsters and mythical beasts. How did you, did you just take, oh, actually, I guess the myths aren't always, um, they're not always the same in the different uh, ways they're described. How, how did you approach no, exactly. the monsters? Well, I approached it from a few different uh, from a few different viewpoints. So, first of all, I really relied on the Eddas. So there are two different Eddas, and they are the mythological, textual, mythological basis. And um, there's the Prosa Edda, which was written down by Snorri Sturluson, uh, mm-hmm. who is a Christian, uh, Icelandic who wrote it down to preserve the myths, but I felt like he often inserted himself and his own views into the stories. It felt like there was a very strong author voice. And so I very much relied on the poetic Edda, which is mostly verse. There's no clear author. We think it was written down by monks who wanted to preserve the old myths. And I looked at many different translations. And yeah, that, and then looking at the archaeology, what kind of things were represented on everyday items for Viking. What were the gods that were most represented and why were they the most represented? What sort of beasts were on their cups, on different sort of household objects? Mm-hmm. And so I really had a close look at that. I mostly relied on the poetic edda, though, because that is really textually, um, I would say, the closest that we can get to Viking Age beliefs. Hmm. Um. Do you have any favorite among your monster, among your beasts, among your mythical creatures? Do you have any favorites? I must admit, I quite like the giants and the Jotun. The Jotun. Um, So they are not always giants, but often are. In my book, I've tried to keep it a bit simple so that we don't get too confused. Hmm. Um, I think they are very fascinating because they eventually bring upon the death of all the gods. They rise to create Ragnarok, the final battle where most of the gods die and most of the giants, most of the Jotun die as well. Most of all of these fantastic beasts die in that final battle. Mm-hmm. And I find that's quite an interesting part of the mythology. Where And so if this question doesn't uh, create any spoilers, where, where do the, the giants in your story reside? Do they have a specific area or are they... Oh, yes. So the in, according to Norse mythology, there are nine worlds. There is the world that we live in called Midgard, and then there are eight other worlds. And one of these worlds is specifically for giants or Jotun, called Jotunheim, mm-hmm. which basically means the realm of the giants or the realm of the Jotun. So that is where the giants mostly reside. But obviously, I would, in my novels, people, not just people, but beasts, different creatures travel between the nine worlds. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But yes, that's where they reside. Okay. Um, so what are some of the things, uh, books, movies, TV, or, excuse me, books, music, uh, mm-hmm. TV shows, um, that inspire sort of your imagination? Well, first of all, as a Dane, I grew up with a very specific comic that I think most Danes around my age will be very familiar with. It's a bit in the vein of Asterix or Lucky Luke, mm-hmm. but it tells the famous story from Norse mythology and really highlights the funny bits. And it's a, a series called Valhalla mm-hmm. by the drawer Peter Messen. I think most Danes will probably be familiar with this. And I've read them so many times that even now when I close my eyes and think about Odin, Thor, and Loki and all of them, I picture his drawings because they were just so strong, mm-hmm. so well corrected characterized so that was very definite influence on this um on a more general note i would say i'm quite a visual person so i really draw a lot of inspiration from great cinematic experiences um films that make me think a bit deeper Mm -hmm. or just make me come away with a certain emotion a certain feeling i would say i'm probably inclined to I have a personal preference for the films of Luc Besson, mm-hmm. um, who's a French film director, and Christopher Nolan and Studio Ghibli as well. 
I'd say most often when I watch a film by one of these people, I walk away feeling inspired, like I want to create something cool and unique. Uh-huh. And that's really a great feeling to, to have. Um, are, yeah. are there any, um, and not necessarily in, in English, any t- uh, shows or movies about Vikings that you particularly liked? And there is. I mean, good, good question, because there is. Um, just around the time when I was writing Northern Wrath, uh, the Canadian History Channel came out with the show in English called Vikings. Mm-hmm. And this is a bit more of an Anglo-Saxon interpretation of the era, I would say. Mm-hmm. But um, they did something that I find absolutely extraordinary. They gave all of the characters an accent. But it wasn't an existent Scandinavian accent. So it's not like they got a Norwegian person to pronounce everything and then just copied that. It's sort of an accent that incorporates many different Scandinavian accents. So it just gives the entire series this Norse feeling. And as you're watching, you're constantly reminded these are people who come from a different place. They have a different way about them. They think in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's something that really fascinated me while watching that. Hmm. Um, as you were doing your research for the book, um, mm-hmm. was there anything you came across, any popular beliefs about Vikings um, that you well, said, that's... you know what, no, you know, no, this is, I'm not going to have this. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the first one and most obvious one is probably uh, horned helmets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> horned helmets, yeah, that, that one that one drives me a bit mad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I get very happy when I see shows like Vikings where there are no horned helmets. It <laughs> makes me so happy. Um, but yes, there is, a, there is a belief that horned helmets were a thing. And they do look very cool, so I do get it. But I have also sailed and bought a Viking warship. I know how impractical that would be. <laughs> so there's just no way um and there is not there's no archaeological basis for it there there is a found that they say but of a horned helmet but it's not from the right era it's from way before and they think it was used for symbolic reasons and uh not not at all in war so that one is is one i think a lot about and another one that probably surprised me a bit that comes from sailing with the ship as well is we all have probably most of us have this picture in our minds of viking warships with all of the shields on the side of the ship mm-hmm. and this has been tested it has been tried again and again problem is you can't row at the same time just can't and they fall off when you're out at high sea. <laughs> it's just a mess. So if they did it, they must have had some genius method that we have yet to uncover today. Mm-hmm. So that one doesn't annoy me. It's just I often think about it. I think it's quite fascinating. I wonder if they did do it and how, how in the world would they have done it? Hmm. I haven't figured that one out yet. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So, oh. That that inspired another question. Give me give me a okay. moment to see if I can. Um, oh yes. So so when you're when you're rowing, do you? Okay. So two questions. Do you wear okay. any kind of close to authentic kind of costume? That's the first. Um, we don't. So there are a few different ships at the museum and other museums as well who have different ships, <laughs> and this is the largest one. Um, we do not wear authentic. Uh, clothes when we're out hmm. there is a slightly smaller warship that does experiment with experiment with different kind of authentic clothes and there are other ships around that do experiment it's a bit difficult when you're 60 people on board to all have to 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 do that hmm. but we do occasionally get a few people on board who try something new uh, to see if it could work um, often it doesn't so it's always best to have rain gear ready at the hmm. side as well because it does get very wet and very rainy um, so no, we don't on our ship. Also, there's the complication that no matter what, we do have to wear uh, life vests because we are out in the open. There's no indoors on the ship like that. Right. So we are exposed all the time. Um, so there are some regulations that we have to follow. So no, we don't personally, but there are people who are experimenting with that sort of thing. So do you have to avoid any kind of friction? Do you wear any kind of special pants or gloves or that sort of thing? 
uh, personally, I have uh, some fingerless, fingerless gloves that I quite like using, especially for rowing, because you very quickly get blisters and sores on your on your hands, and it's not very nice when that happens on the first day, and you've got two weeks of rowing left. That's it's not the greatest. Um, so I have that, but then other than that, it's just layers, 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 and then rain clothes. You really need to be prepared for the rain and just for water to be splashing over the side of the ship which does happen even when it's not raining. Mm. So, yeah, prepare for the worst. Lots of layers. Do you, is there any evidence whether were Vikings, were they good swimmers, you know, open ocean swimmers? Honestly, we have no idea. That is, that is one of those things that's very, very difficult. Um, as far as I've seen in the different finds, psychological finds that I've seen, I haven't seen any... Um, you know, any drawing of them. Sometimes we have drawings of ships or, and so on that Vikings once upon a time have made, but I haven't seen any evidence of swimming, but there's also no evidence to the contrary either. Mm-hmm. I would say the sagas, pro- the, the sagas mentioned something, <sighs> but it's been a long time since I read them. So honestly, I'm not sure I can, I can answer that <laughs> convincingly. Um, but yeah, either way, it's diff- that's one of those things that's really difficult to to know for for certain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and secondly, again, maybe no evidence. Um, did they have any life saving equipment for that time? You know, like uh, any kind of if you went overboard, did they have yeah. anything to help you get? I think you'd be on your own. To be honest, I think you'd be on your own. Yeah. Um, to be fair, the ships are very maneuverable. So if you do fall overboard in kind of passable weather, it should, in theory, be possible to go back around and pick you up. But it's very difficult to see someone in the water. Even today, with all of the life-saving equipment that we have, it's very difficult to see what someone who's fallen overboard. But if they're conscious, technically, it should be possible. But, yeah. So theoretically, if, if you couldn't swim and there was no equipment to save you, if you went overboard, <laughs> going out on a boat is a pretty courageous or foolhardy. <laughs> it is. Action. And this is maybe why they also had a, um, a belief. So when you die as a Viking, <laughs> there are three different places that you can go in the afterlife. And one of those places is at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> so if you drown, you will go to a special kind of place. It's a feast hall owned by Ran and Aegir make the best feasts and their hall is decorated with gold that's the light all of the light in the hall comes from the gold so it's a very beautiful mythical place so vikings believe that if they drowned that's where they went in the afterlife hmm. i guess a lot of them must have drowned if <laughs> <laughs> at least enough for there to be a belief around it <laughs> yeah that's uh i've never heard of that before that's pretty fascinating I mean, it would happen as well. They sailed in, you know, icy weather. For example, up in Greenland, and if we look at Life the Lucky, who went to America, that journey, the way he describes that he lost 20 ships on the way, something like that, mm-hmm. just stuck in the ice. Hmm. So, I mean, it, it was perilous journeys. They would often travel to places without really knowing what was at the other side. Let's, let's see. Let's go out and explore. Hmm. So it is a perilous kind of life. Is Was there a place for freezing to death, a special place when you die that way? No, unfortunately, no, no. Um, there is a place for if you drown, if you die in battle, then you go to Valhalla, where you get to feast with the gods during the day and then, or during the night, and then during the day you go out and you fight to the death. And you repeat day after day after day, feast, fight, feast, fight, feast, fight. Mm-hmm. And then the last place is Helheim. So that's any other circumstance you would go to Helheim, which is a place not that much unlike Midgard, I would say, but certainly with with uh, a harsher approach to crime. <laughs> mm. But um, not not that unlike our current day. Pretty much life would just continue. And that is a realm owned by Hel, who is son of Loki, who is, you could say, a bit of an antagonist in most of the mythology. Mm-hmm. And Hel is kind of a, a hideous figure. She is often described as quite hideous. Hmm. Um, half of us, half of her is like a dead body, like a corpse. So oh, that's nice. how she's usually described. Yeah. Yeah. So oh. those were your options. 
How do you like the Marvel Comics version of Norse mythology? Oh, you're going to get me into trouble now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think I think they've done a lot for um, to to raise awareness around the names of the gods, for example, Mm. and you know some of their attributes. But personally. I will always see Thor as a redhead, not a blonde, because <laughs> he was called Red Thor. So for me, in my mind, he will always be a redhead with big red beard. Um, so yeah, I do have my quarrels with it, but I do acknowledge that it's opened a lot of people's minds and a lot of people have started getting interested in Vikings as a result of that. So I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And I don't think they portrayed hell as uh, half a corpse. <laughs> Like she, she was, I'm getting some feedback. That's why I was pausing. Um, because she's, she's pretty uh, attractive in the, in the Marvel oh, universe, really? right? Isn't she? Oh, I, I, I honestly don't know. I don't remember how she looks in the Marvel version. Oh, well, I'm speaking with Tilda Coldholt, author of Northern Wrath. You can find more information on her work at northernwrath.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. So one of the, uh, I think it's the only saga I've read, Neil Saga, you know. With, yes, yeah. With Neil the, Gaiman's, yeah. The, uh, oh, n- uh, oh, n- oh, Neil. Neil, Neil yeah, Saga. Okay, yeah. Got you, yeah. Um, I, I guess it's pronounced, I, I, I'm not, I think the English pronunciation is Neil or it's Neil or something. Yeah, yeah, no, you're correct. Um, so with the blood feuds there, is that more an Iceland thing or do you have that in your story as well? Um, I tend to see it as a bit of an Iceland thing, but it could, I mean, there are instances of it elsewhere as well. I don't have as much of it in my work. There is, there is a bit of it when you read, uh, the ancient histories of both Norway and Denmark have quite extensive histories that we can, that we know of today. Um, and there are a few instances of it, but not to the extent of the Icelandic sagas. Not, not even close. So I tend to view it as a bit of an Icelandic thing. Um, but they're very, very interesting to read about. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Quite uh, severe stories. <laughs> That's a good word to use, yeah. <laughs> um, what would you say is the um, sort of the aesthetic or energy of the book? Um th- Aesthetic or energy, and and I mean, sort of talking visual aesthetic. Then I know that Vikings are often represented as wearing black and grays and so on. But actually, when we look at the archaeology, they were very fond of colors, mm-hmm. very fond of colors, and they were fond of dressing up and wearing pretty beads and so on, bleaching their hair, plucking their eyebrows, washing regularly. Um, so I tend to visually, I tend to see some very colorful people in maybe a bit more of a rainy, dark, gray, cloudy background. Hmm. Um, so aesthetically, I would say that, yeah. And what, and I usually combine this question with what would you say would be if the book had a soundtrack to it, what would it sound like? (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. I have, I have a very clear answer to this. Because I have um, two different artists, mostly two different artists that I listened a lot to while writing. And I always thought, oh, if this was a soundtrack, I would combine these two artists and just make the perfect, the perfect little thing. <laughs> so the first is um, a Scandinavian band called Vardruna. And they do Viking music. I suppose it's more like Viking sounds. So you will have uh, a branch being tapped on a tree trunk, for example. <laughs> Or you'll have the sound of crunchy steps in the snow, or a horse breathing, or lightning and thunder. You'll have all of these different sounds from the forest, and just sounds that would have surrounded the Vikings. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, they have this beautiful chant and voices 
that just make me want to stand up and stomp in rhythm. <laughs> so I would combine that with another artist I listened a lot to as well, also Scandinavian, Agnes Opel, or Agnes Opel, you might say in English. Her first two albums, Philharmonics and Aventine, they have a kind of nostalgic feeling, a bit of a sorrowful feeling. Um, they're unplugged, but mostly piano sound with a few strings and then just her voice layered on top. And that one really brings me into a certain mood that I would say also represents the book quite well. So a combination of these two would be my preferred soundtrack mm. for the aesthetic of the book. Have you seen, I'm sure you've seen the show Be Foreigners? Shall, yeah, I haven't seen it, but yeah, oh. I, I know of it. <laughs> oh, because they have some of that um, stomping and chanting in it. So it's just yes. that you made me think of that. Yes, it's lovely. We still have that today in certain parts of Scandinavia. For example, the Faroe Islands as well. Hmm. So still, it feels like a, a big part of, of the culture. Hmm. Okay. Um, so as far as uh, your writing process, um, is there anything sort of out of the ordinary or maybe different from other authors that you do to um, complete your, your drafts and maybe the final work? Hmm, I don't know if it's completely out of the ordinary, but I do write every day. So I tend to not keep weekdays. It's just once a week, my phone kind of buzzes and tells me go out and buy groceries. Hmm. But otherwise, I just keep to, I try to write consistently every day. Um, but out of the ordinary. Oh, I would say most of the writers that I know um, need quiet. And need silence when they sit down to write. Maybe a bit of music, but otherwise complete silence. I am the opposite of that. Mm. I want commotion. And I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I really like to write in cafes, but they need to be busy cafes. People coming and going, mm. talking, preferably different languages. The more buzz, the better for me. Because then I get very focused into my writing, and when I look up, I can just get this ambience full of life and I can have small pieces of detail, small details looking around at people that I then makes me think of something else and makes me go back into my writing. So I need a lot of commotion around me. Hmm. How many languages do you speak? Uh, fluently, I speak four languages. Hmm. And I'm curious because of the different, you know, what, what are the languages? Right. Um, so Danish is my mother tongue, although sometimes it feels like French is my mother tongue. So French is the second one. And then English is the third third one. And the fourth one is Korean. Hmm. Interesting. So be... I've learned Catalan or Spanish in school, but I wouldn't say I'm proficient at it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Is this your first uh, published work? Yes, this is my debut. Okay. Because I have, I normally ask, how has your approach to writing changed over time. And I guess you, I'm sure you've been writing for a little bit of time before you yes. got published. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that there has been a change, especially while writing this actually. So when I began to write the hanged God trilogy and Northern wrath, I really thought I was completely convinced that I was a plotter pure and through. I had plotted everything out in detail. I had a full chapter plan. I had detailed synopses for each book so organized. And then, then about halfway through Northern Wrath, one of my characters suddenly decided that she was not going to do what I wanted her to do. <laughs> In fact, she was going to do the exact opposite. And honestly, I thought about it, but I didn't feel right to push her back until the original path because I felt like this, this had to happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. So I sort of replotted a bit and tried to find a new way to get her back towards the path that I wanted her to be on. And then more of the characters started to do the same thing. <laughs> so it kept happening. But what I eventually find out that is that as I replotted along the way, it felt like the story came alive a bit more. Mm -hmm. So it felt like I just, by being a bit more flexible, I allowed the characters to breathe. It's not quite to the extent of becoming a discovery writer, not not at my stage at least, but I feel like for me, the story started to get more interesting as I let go a little and I adapted the plot along the way. Because obviously I still want them to end up at the same, at the big finale that I had planned and everything. Mm -hmm. 
but um, I think it helps to let characters breathe sometimes and let things happen and then find a way to get back to what you wanted to do. Does that mean you're not, you wouldn't plot, you wouldn't create a detailed plot again or, or would you do it oh, again? I definitely, would. I definitely would. I think it's important to have, at least for me, to have a clear direction in mind. So I know what the story beats are, I know where I want to go, where I need to go, and what my overall story arc is, and what my characters, what they need to go through. But I think it's important, at least it has been for me, to be able to adapt along the way when things happen. So if I didn't have the detailed plot from the beginning, then I wouldn't know what to pull them back towards. I wouldn't know how to fix the new things that happened. I wouldn't know how to still have the ending. So I think for me, the importance has been on managing both. So having a plot and having, you know, very detailed plan, but being flexible enough to be able to disregard it at times and replot things. Did you feel, were there times when the characters um, might have acted in a way that would be uh, distasteful to a modern audience, but you felt oh. that you had to, they had to do as they did as you know, would be natural at the time. Very, very, very good question. And the answer is yes. <laughs> um, yes. Um, I mean, obviously from an Anglo-Saxon perspective, when we look at Vikings, most people think, Oh, plunder, pillage, rape, horrible, horrible people. Um, and I come in with my Viking perspective and I say, well, you know, they were just good tradesmen. You know, they'd come in with the axe <laughs> slung across the, uh, the shoulder and they'd say, so are you going to give me your gold or do I need to kill you first? <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the approach that I've had to take. Mm -hmm. But obviously, as modern day readers, we can't have our main characters commit too much violence. Mm -hmm. So this has been something that I've gone back and forth on a lot throughout the edits. So first off, I really pulled back and then, oh, you need a bit more violence. Otherwise, it's not Vikings. Okay, you want violence. I'm going to give you violence. <laughs> and then next word I got back is, oh, it's too much. It's too much. This is not good. They're going to, you know, they're going to be unsympathetic to, to modern readers. Okay, I'm going to pull back. So there's been a big uh, back and forth there and doing the editing to really get the the right amount without being overbearing, without having too much of it. Right. Right. Have you done other kinds of work, non-writing work, um, that's influenced how or what you write? Um, no, I'm, I view myself as a full-time writer. And while I've had smaller jobs here and there, I would say there's nothing that has in any way inspired or influenced me creatively. So to answer in a very, very Viking fashion, no. <laughs> Got it. Um, <laughs> So you did mention some of the editing that you've yes. done. Were there large parts of the book that you had to take out? I mean, at 700 pages, yeah. was it even bigger than that to start with? And you chopped Ooh, down? Or... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a bit of a manic laugh here because, uh, yes, there was a lot of editing involved. So I wrote this, the novel, uh, doing my MA initially. Mm -hmm. And I finished the full manuscript doing my MA. And then I began to query agents. And as I was querying, I continued writing the same story. So eventually, I had two books. And both of them were about 200,000 words. Mm. So that's actually a bit longer than what you're holding right now, what you have. Um, and then, which the current version, I think, is 185,000 words, something like that. So I had two novels at 200,000 words. But I had a problem. I didn't have a really strong ending for book one. And my agent and I, we both knew what needed to happen, but neither one of us wanted to say it. And so after a big bit back and forth, I eventually go, okay, let's just do it. Let's put them together and see what happens. So we decided to join book one and two. And that meant that suddenly I had a manuscript that was 400,000 words long. Wow. Yeah, that's big boy. Um, and I ended up cutting out more than 200,000 words. So I ended up taking out more than half of the novel. Hmm. So, I mean, that kind of begs the question, what do you take out when you have to take out that much? How do you 
take that much out without harming the story or the characters or the feeling of the book. And for me, it was a lot of fillers. So when I originally wrote the book, there were certain chapters and certain sections of the book that I needed to write in order to really get the characters and get the story, really get into it. But when I looked at it objectively, with a bit of hindsight, Mm -hmm. I could see that they weren't actually advancing the plot of the trilogy. They weren't contributing to the long-term story that I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. So they all went. (laughs) And then it was things like cutting out pieces of chapters, paragraph here and there, sentence here and there, and just being a bit more careful with my words. So that's how I cut out that much. But it was a lot of editing. Did any of the characters end up in the uh, afterlife where discarded characters end up quite a few actually (laughs) not not any main characters there are still quite all the main characters are there but um, there were side characters it actually relates a bit to what you asked earlier as well if there was something that i had to do differently um clinging to the historical accuracy of things because a lot of the characters that went out were siblings to characters that we know Hmm. And I was just like, they don't, they don't all need seven siblings. But I know that if we look at historical accuracy, there would probably be more than one or two siblings. Mm. But, I mean, you have to prioritize the story before everything else. Mm-hmm. So mainly the characters that went were characters like that. They weren't important to the overall story, but they were just there. Mm. Yeah, no, I get it. A bit of a whimsical question. Okay. And perhaps I can guess the answer, but when you were younger, was there a power technology or fictional setting you yearned to have or be part of? Well, now I'm curious about what your guess would have been. <laughs> well, my guess would have simply been Viking, you know, Viking, you know, his- being in a historical Viking setting, but, you know. I mean, you're not wrong. I would love a time machine. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> But actually, to give you a bit of a whimsical answer, I am of the Harry Potter generation. So I learned to read thanks to Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with the characters through when the books and the films were still coming out. So for me, I've always wanted some kind of magic. I've always wanted, whether it's through a wand or through knowing the true name of something, or just being able to move it with your mind, I've always wanted some kind of magic. Mm-hmm. But a... Um, yeah, a spaceship would also be much appreciated to this day. I would love that. My own personal spaceship with a time machine inside, that would be lovely. Hmm. But uh, yes, magic is definitely my answer. I always grew up with stories about fantasy and magic in the house. So even before Harry Potter, there was always magic around. What were Viking... Were, were there... I actually don't know if there were Viking wizards of any type or witches or anything like that. Well, I suppose that Jotun and the gods are kind of wizards in a way, that they do have forms of magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do have abilities that are definitely beyond uh, our current day understanding. So they were often regarded as wizards so, as well. So the historian that I mentioned earlier, Saxochromaticus, who... I know I don't think I mentioned him, but Saxochromaticus, yes, I did, uh, with the uh, with the female warriors. So Saxochromaticus... He also wrote about the gods, but he explained it away that they were not gods. They were just wizards. Hmm. So in his understanding of the mythology, all the gods were just wizards. So I guess you could say that they were wizards. I mean, Odin has a horse with eight legs that can fly. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of magical. But the, but your average person did was there a Viking tradition of the you know the outcast the strange outcast person who dabbles in the arcane arts? Uh, yes, that was actually. It was called Said uh, or Said. I don't really. I'm not certain about the pronunciation, but it was a form of magic, uh, and often it related to visions, so being able to see things in past and future, and they acted as sort of a vessel between this world and the next. So they were, you, I suppose in current day, we would probably call them priests, but I don't really think that's what they were. They were a vessel for people to contact the gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like as we're talking, there's so much, like I've read a lot about Vikings, but I feel like there's so much that I don't know too. So Yeah. Yeah. 
I think I was surprised as well because obviously as a Scandinavian, I grew up hearing about the Vikings and the Norse mythology. But really, as I dug deeper, there were so many things that I didn't really know. For example, I have a concept that I also use a lot in the book. It's called Fulio, mm -hmm. which was a Viking Age belief that you had sort of an animal companion who would show up when you were in mortal danger to warn you, to mm -hmm. give you a chance of escaping. Because although the Vikings believed that they had a destiny, they also believed that they had choice. Mm. And when we look at that today, we sort of think, well, that's kind of a contradiction. But it somehow works. I mean, when you, when you read through the mythology, it makes sense. Their destinies were made in thread, not, you know, hacked in stone. Mm. So there were possibilities for them to make choices and make changes. Yeah, the whole idea of the, the whole uh, weaving thing. Yes. Is, do you have that in the book? You know. The, the... Yes, I do. Yeah, more in the second book, I will say, than the first one. But yes, it's there. So now, so this is this a duology or a trilogy? This is a trilogy, and I have written the entire trilogy, so it's ready. <laughs> so the first book started at four hundred thousand, but there are two additional yep. books. Is am I correct? Yes, correct. So the first one was indeed two books that I then joined into one, but then. Book two, current book two and three, um, are around the same word count, the same size that as the first one now it's. Hmm. So I've stuck to those. I've stuck within the word count on those. Hmm. And what's the publication schedule for the next two? Um, as far as I know, next year we're going to get book two and the year after that book three. Okay, around the same time, around October? Around the same time, I think. I don't know much more, but yes, I think so. Right, okay. Um I noticed in your bio you're a big K-pop fan as well. Yes, true. So what, how, who are your favorites and what's how, how did that develop? I guess you lived um, in South Korea. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange story, yeah. Um, I suppose I discovered K-pop. Well, it wasn't K-pop to begin with. I discovered Korean music, I would say, because it was hip-hop that I originally discovered mm. when I was quite young. I think I was 12 or 13, just browsing online and... There was a music video of a Korean hip-hop group that I ended up watching. I thought, okay, that's quite interesting. Before then, I had never liked hip-hop. I never wanted to listen to hip-hop. I'd even declared that I would listen to all genres except hip-hop. Hmm. And then I found myself completely loving this song and this group called Epic High. Hmm. And I started to research more about them, found out, oh, they're Korean, okay, maybe there's more cool music coming out of Korea. And so I started looking things up line from there on, and it's been quite a few years since then. I think it's been 13 years, 12, 12 13 years that I've been listening to Korean music. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's how that developed. And as to my favorites, I think it changes a lot. I still really like Epic Eye, mm. <laughs> I must admit. Um, I've quite liked BTS as well mm. when they were coming up. They also started in more of a hip hop vibe and I really enjoy that. They have very strong lyrics. Mm -hmm. So since I speak Korean, the lyrics to me are very important. <laughs> mm. okay. So I put a lot of weight on lyrics. Um, and currently I'm listening a lot to an artist called Lee Hai, who just has a new song out called Holo, mm. which is, um, very, she has a very beautiful voice, I'd say. Um, my mother sometimes heard her music and tends to call her the Adele of Korea. Hmm. So, so that's how I'm going to describe her. Mm -hmm. Now, it yeah. sounds like BTS is really popular now, but it sounds like you're not as much into their new stuff. Um, yes, I would say they've gone a bit more pop these days. Mm -hmm. And while I still enjoy it, I'm not quite as interested as I was when they did proper hip-hop. But, you know, I'm still always watching out for when they're coming out with new stuff, seeing if I'm going to love it. Hmm. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, a lot of my Instagram followers are cosplayers and into uh, K-pop. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, it's it's been getting really, really, really big. It's fun because when I got into it, there was no information almost in English whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So it's fantastic nowadays to see that many people all across the world having access to you know different sounds different music different cultures basically mm -hmm. i think it's absolutely fantastic oh yeah i wish i had that when i was younger <laughs> a bit more of that yeah. uh, i would definitely have gotten into it a lot earlier <laughs> yeah yeah well, 
<laughs> Are you sure you were pretty adamant? It sounds like when you were twelve. Yeah, I, th I think I was. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I was set on it as soon as I discovered it. I thought, oh, here is something interesting. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's dig deeper. <laughs> um, so, did you have any other difficulties finishing or publishing the book apart from the stuff we've we've discussed? Yes. So for me, first of all, getting an agent was a bit of a conundrum. <laughs> I started querying and I think it took me six months before I signed with my current agent. Mm -hmm. But from then on until I got a contract with a publishing house, three and a half years went by. Mm -hmm. And so this was a time where we were constantly together with my agent. We were constantly editing and trying to query different publishers and so on. And so it was a time where I really had to be headstrong, keep going, believe in it, keep going. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. But um, so it, it was quite it was quite tough during those three and a half years. But now, in hindsight, I am so thankful I had that time because while we were querying and while we were editing, I managed to finish the rest of the trilogy. Yeah. It means that now it's done. I can turn off my Viking brain and everything is okay <laughs> because now I'm also seeing, you know, as a debut author, everything that happens and it's, it's kind of stressful and very exciting. Many things are happening that you're not used to. Mm -hmm. And I just imagine having to write the sequel right now. Oh, that would be, that would be quite difficult. So I'm feeling very thankful. So during that three and a half years, mm -hmm. as you're rewriting and stuff, did that, it sounds like it sort of affected how you were writing the the next two books well i would say that not not in maybe not as much as you'd think mm -hmm. i think the editing process meant that i had a bigger focus on the kind of pace that i was making i was writing mm. in book two and three which meant that ultimately i had less editing work to do before being able to hand it in to someone else mm -hmm. because it was up to the new standard and not the old standard um, so I think I've been able to progress with my work quite nicely during that time and, uh, yeah, keeping a similar tone, a similar pace throughout. Hmm. Okay. So since you're waiting for these two other books to come out, um, are, yep. it, are, are you working on other writing projects or are you taking a rest for now? I am indeed working on other things. So what's wonderful thing, wonderful about this is for me, Vikings right now, done, turn off the Viking brain turn on project two. Mm -hmm. So for me, what I'm currently working on right now is um, looking at a different language, a different country, a different culture, mm -hmm. and that is Korea. So I spent a few semesters in Korea, both learning the language and learning traditional Korean archery. Mm -hmm. And I'm really fascinated by the history, mm -hmm. have a long, beautiful history. So what I'm doing is I'm going back to ancient times, back to really the root of what pulls me towards this place as well and towards this culture. And it's a trilogy set in 7th century Korea. Mm -hmm. So this is a time where Korea is divided into three different kingdoms, all fighting to gain full control over the peninsula. And just like my stories with the Vikings, what ancient Koreans likely believed in is what makes up the magic in the story. So there will be spirits, there will be gods, and there will be magic. That's what I'm working on right now. How connected is the Korean um, belief system to the Chinese one with Taoism and Confucianism and, and that sort of thing? There are definitely connections, uh, especially, I mean, they did have, they call them the three pillars of, of learning, of teaching. Mm -hmm. So Taoism, Confucian, Confucius, and uh, Buddhism. Mm -hmm. But they also have uh, shamanic rituals and shamanic beliefs that are a bit different. Um, so there are, there are some connection and a lot of influences from that side, but they also have their own own deal. And they they look at them in a different light. I think that's what's most, most interesting to me is that their interpretation is a bit different than the traditional Chinese interpretation. Hmm. Okay. And this will be written in English? Yes, also in English. Okay. With the hope that it will be popular enough to translate to Korean? Of course, that would be lovely. That would be wonderful. Yeah. But I, what I quite enjoy doing, and I think the English language is perfect for this, is try to explore different cultures through language and try to 
give people also of a different culture an idea of what it was like to come from this place. For example, what was it like to be a Viking? What was it like to be ancient Korean? And you can do a lot with the English language that you can't really do in many other languages. So that's why I specifically choose to write in English or one of the reasons I specifically choose to write in English because hmm. of the very diverse cultural roots of English. There are so many possibilities, so many different ways that you can turn the language. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you online? Do you have social media, website? Yeah. So I have a website, tildekalthalt.com. <laughs> so if that's a bit difficult to write, northernrath.com will take you to the same site. Mm -hmm. And on Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at coldhold. So that's at K-O-L-D-H-O-L-D-T. And I'll also spell your first name for the website. That's T-H-I-L-D-E yes. and then the rest of what you just um, Perfect. Spelled yes. out. Cool. I feel like I have a, a million more questions because I'm fascinated <laughs> by both of these cultures. Um, but I'll just, uh, but, but I'll stop there for times for, for the sake okay. of time. Um, well, maybe we can take them at a future time then. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's all the questions I have for now. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Um, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Oh, and some very nice and interesting questions. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I learned a lot too, so I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe and rate it if you can. If you want more fiction and fiction studies ranging from ancient mythology to modern day sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. On my webpage, you'll also find written interviews and links to my social media accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I also discuss art, acting, comic books, gaming, and much more. Thanks again, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.